You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hey, Brainiacs, it's Moxie. Having an uptick in the old chronic health problem, so we're going to go back to the vault for this week. But before we do, I just want to remind everyone that I am participating in live stream for The Cure to raise money for cancer research. It is Memorial Day weekend. My slot is 10 a.m. on Saturday, that is 10 Eastern time, and I will be reading a section from the Your Brain on Facts book, one of the topics that has never and will never be featured on the podcast. So go to livestreamforthecure.com for all the information. I know now is a difficult time to be raising money for anything, but people with cancer are specifically vulnerable in this situation. So I challenge each of my brainiacs to donate $1 for every person they can name who has battled cancer. Don't forget that trivia runs until Friday morning, and the prize this week, three different games donated from Greenbrier Games. So head on over to yourbrainonfacts.com slash trivia, take the quiz, and be sure you pass it on to your friends and family so you can go head-to-head. And now, our feature presentation. When you want something done right, you have to do it yourself. This philosophy is okay when it comes to loading the dishwasher, but maybe not so much when you're trying to find the cure for a venereal disease. No one told that to Dr. John Hunter. Medical types in the 18th century believed gonorrhea and syphilis were caused by the same pathogen. Dr. Hunter injected himself with gonorrhea to test the theory. He contracted gonorrhea and syphilis probably from using the same needle to extract both samples. My name's Moxie, and this is your Brain on Facts. We're talking today about medical experimentation, much of which took place before we had a solid handle on germ theory and things like good hygiene, so be forewarned that it's gonna get icky, and there will be some talk of body parts. Today's list is in the time-honored tradition of random order I copied the names into Google Docs. But let's start with the OG Isaac Newton. Newton had many areas of interest, not just fruit-based physics. Newton voluntarily stuck a needle in his eye in the name of science. The experiment was designed to test optics and color perception. He thought that if he slid a long needle called a bodkin behind his eyeball, between the eye and the eye socket, and started poking, his vision would change. Lo and behold, it did. He noticed that he saw different perceptions of color and light as small, colorful dots that appeared when he applied pressure. It's the same thing that happens if you press on your eyes. Newton also stared at the sun in a mirror, repeatedly, until the image of the sun stayed even when he closed his eyes. It stayed for months. He had to spend three days in a darkened room until it faded enough for him to go on with his daily life. While at the Medical Pneumatic Institute of Bristol in the 1790s, Humphrey Davy studied gases. Studied by inhaling, if today's theme was still in any way unclear. Davy would set up chemical reactions and then inhale the resulting gas. One gas gave him a pleasant sensation and the impulse to laugh at everything he had discovered nitrous oxide. Though his initial attempts were meant to reproduce the pleasurable effects of opium and alcohol, Davy would ultimately recommend the use of nitrous oxide as an anesthetic. 
Your dentist gives you a blend of 50% nitrous and 50% oxygen. But Davy was huffing 100% nitrous oxide, which is probably why he enjoyed it enough to start hosting parties where friends would inhale it from silk bags. When it came time to test his polio vaccine, Dr. Jonas Salk decided to avoid the long and drawn-out human clinical trial process. The only suitable test subject was himself and his family. In 1947, Salk was working on a vaccine for the crippling disease while at the University of Pittsburgh. He needed a healthy volunteer to test it, and administered it to himself, his wife, and their three sons. It worked, and was soon implemented in a nationwide test that showed dramatic results. In two years, polio cases decreased from 29,000 to less than 6,000. Salk didn't patent the vaccine, and insisted that it should remain free and available to everyone, saying, Could you patent the sun? As a result, he's often remembered as one of history's great humanitarians. Dr. Olivier Amiesen was a brilliant cardiologist with his own practice in the second half of the 20th century when he developed a life-hindering addiction to alcohol. Fearing for his life, he immersed himself in AA, rehab, therapy, but nothing worked. So he did the only thing he felt he could. He took his treatments into his own hands. Searching for a cure, he happened upon baclofen, a muscle relaxant that had been used for years, but had shown promising results in studies with laboratory animals addicted to a variety of substances. Dr. Amison prescribed himself the drug and experimented with increasingly higher doses until he finally reached a level that left him free of any craving for alcohol. He published his results in 2004, which a team of Italian scientists tested with promising results in 2008. Werner Forsman was a German urologist who, during his surgical training in 1921, pioneered the technique of cardiac catheterization, the inserting of a catheter into the heart to measure the pressure inside and decide whether a patient needs surgery. Building on the work of scientists who had successfully catheterized a horse in 1861, Forsman was inspired to try to replicate that work in humans, but couldn't get permission for human trials of such a dangerous-sounding experiment. Undeterred, he asked an operating room nurse to procure the necessary equipment. She agreed, but only on the noble condition that he experiment on her rather than trying to do it to himself. No sooner was she prepped on the table then Forsman anesthetized his own arm and made a cut, inserting the catheter 12 inches or 30 centimeters into his vein. He then casually climbed two flights of stairs to the x-ray suite before threading it all the way into his heart and having an x-ray done to check the placement. He was later forced to resign from that hospital, then hired back and fired again. In the early 30s, doctors Herbert Woolard and Edward Carmichael noticed that when an internal organ was damaged, patients sometimes felt pain in unconnected parts of their body. They decided to deliberately damage one of their own internal organs to study the effects. But what internal organ did they have that was both non-critical and easily damaged? Maybe one, or a pair of ones that's effectively on the outside of the body for easy access. Yep, they chose to experiment with their gentleman's bits, to study pain. 
In their notes, Woolard and Carmichael recorded that the testes was drawn forward and placed under a pan that could hold weights, though they recorded neither whose testes nor who did the drawing forward. Weights were added to the pan, and the resulting sensations were recorded. The pair performed the experiment multiple times, sometimes injecting various sections of the testicles with local anesthetic to numb the pain. After sufficient experimentation, they concluded that testicular pain often came with generalized torso pain. If only one testicle was harmed, only one side of the torso would feel the effect. Was their bravery worth it? Doctors still note the referred pain that comes along with testicular trauma, so they helped advance medical knowledge in their own small way. Chemist Albert Hoffman first synthesized lysergic acid diethylamide, better known as LSD, in 1938 while studying the grain fungus ergot, but he had no idea of its hallucinogenic powers until he accidentally ingested a small amount in 1943. He went home and, quote, sank into a not unpleasant condition. Realizing his discovery, he did what any good scientist would do and began experimenting on himself. Now, little by little, I could begin to enjoy the unprecedented colors and plays of shapes that persisted behind my closed eyes, he wrote of the experience. Kaleidoscopic, fantastic images surged in on me, alternating, variegated, opening and then closing themselves in circles and spirals, exploding in colored fountains, rearranging and hybridizing themselves in constant flux. It was particularly remarkable how every acoustic perception, such as the sound of a door handle or a passing automobile, became transformed into optical perceptions. Every sound generated a vividly changing image with its own consistent form and color. Reminds me of one of my husband's favorite lines. I want synesthesia so bad I can taste it. His first purposeful acid trip was on April 19, 1943, when he famously rode his bicycle home while under the influence of the drug. He deliberately took a dose that he believed to be light, but which led to intense effects while riding home. An episode that became notorious in recreational pharmaceutical circles as Bicycle Day. While the chemical has seen some use in psychiatry, its impact to date has been more cultural than medical. Hoffman wasn't alone in testing out psychedelic drugs on himself. U.S. chemist Alexander Schuling ingested many chemicals, including MDMA, or ecstasy, leading to its use in psychotherapy, and Harvard psychologist Timothy Turn-On-Tune-In-Dropout-Leary, who experimented with LSD on himself to test, among other things, whether it could be used to treat alcoholism. He lost his professional position long before he could figure that one out. What would it take for you to willingly put parasitic hookworms against your skin so that they would burrow through it and live in your intestines and feed off your blood? Immunologist and biologist David Pritchard did just that in 2004. Hookworms seem to be able to modify the body's immune response in ways that would be useful in treating immune system disorders such as asthma and Crohn's disease. Such disorders are comparatively rare in places where the hookworm is common. Was that, though, correlation or causation? Pritchard had a hypothesis that hookworm infection reduced allergy and asthma symptoms and needed to test it on human subjects. 
in order to appease his ethics committee, he agreed to be the guinea pig. Other members of Pritchard's lab also infected themselves with hookworms, which can survive for up to a decade in the body, but are easy to kill off with certain drugs. They itch quite a bit when they go through the skin, said Pritchard, but become really troublesome only when they reached his stomach, causing pain and diarrhea. Fifty worms turned out to be way too many. Ten was a safer number for the test. The experiment later allowed for wider testing on humans, who reported miraculous relief of allergy symptoms. Trials are continuing to evaluate the treatment, including a test to see if the hookworm could help with multiple sclerosis. In 1898, German surgeon August Beer figured that a dose of cocaine injected into spinal fluid would serve as an effective anesthetic. In order to prove this, he had his assistant, Augustus Hildebrandt, attempt to inject him, but Hildebrandt messed it up, and Beer ended up leaking spinal fluid out of a hole in his neck. Rather than abandon the experiment, the two men switched places, and Beer injected Hildebrandt with the cocaine. The injection went correctly this time. Beer then proceeded to hit, hammer, stab, and even burn his assistant. He also pulled Hildebrandt's pubic hair and squashed his testicles. Was that in the spirit of thoroughness? I sure hope so. The pair subsequently went out for a boozy dinner, perhaps in an effort to forget the day's events. And once the cocaine had worn off, though, both suffered terribly in days to come. But while Beer took it easy to recover, Hildebrandt had to cover for him at work. Perhaps unsurprisingly, they subsequently fell out with Hildebrandt becoming one of Beer's fiercest critics and denying his discovery of spinal anesthesia, even as it rapidly caught on. In June of 1903, physicist Pierre Curie, husband of two Nobel Prize winner Marie, rolled up his sleeve and revealed a burn-like wound on his arm to a packed audience at the Royal Institute in the UK. The wound had been caused by a sample of radium salts, which he had taped to the skin of his arm for 10 hours, more than 50 days earlier. During the course of his demonstration, Curie dropped some radium on the desk. The resulting contamination was still detectable and in need of cleanup half a century later. Curie and his wife hoped that radium's burning effect might prove useful in the treatment of cancer. Ironically, the radiation was actually having a catastrophic effect on their health. Both Pierre and Marie were constantly ill, tired, and in pain, but their experiments did pave the way for the use of radium in medicine. As you may have gathered, not everyone on today's list gets a shiny medal and some prize money for their work. Some of them merely got maimed or killed. Sir David Brewster was a Scottish inventor, scientist, and writer. His field of interest was optics and light polarization a field that requires good eyesight. Unfortunately for Sir David, he performed a chemical experiment in 1831 that nearly blinded him. While his vision did eventually return, he was plagued with eye troubles until his death. His legacy in vision takes the form of his invention, the kaleidoscope, a toy that has brought joy to millions of children through the years. Also in the Sacrificing Sight for Science Club, Robert Bunsen is probably best known for giving his name to the Bunsen burner, which he helped to popularize, and one of the least appreciated Muppets. 
He started out his scientific career in organic chemistry, but nearly died twice from arsenic poisoning. Shortly after this near-death experience, he lost the sight in his right eye after an explosion cocodal cyanide. These being excellent reasons to change fields, he moved into inorganic chemistry and went on to develop the field of spectroscopy, which measures and examines light and radiation. Elizabeth Fleischmann Ashheim married her doctor, Dr. Wolf, shortly after her mother died. Wolf was very interested in the new discovery of Wilhelm Conrad Röntgen, X-rays. His new wife became equally interested and gave up her job as a bookkeeper to undertake studies in electrical science. Eventually, she bought an X-ray machine, which she moved into her husband's office, the very first X-ray lab in San Francisco. She and her husband spent some years experimenting with the machine, using themselves as the subjects. Unfortunately, they didn't realize the consequences of their lack of protection, and Elizabeth died of an extremely widespread cancer. In 1885, Daniel Carrion, a young Peruvian medical student, was trying to establish the early symptoms of Viruga disease, an infectious disease rare outside of South America but endemic in parts of Peru. As part of this investigation, he was inoculated with fluid from a Viruga lesion from a patient with a chronic form of the disease. He recorded his symptoms as they developed, including fever, malaise, lethargy, vomiting, and anemia, and it became apparent that he had developed the acute form of the illness, known as Arroyo fever. He died a few weeks later, on October 5th. Carrion is considered a martyr of Peruvian medicine, and October 5th has been designated Peruvian Medicine Day in his honor. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. Alexander Bogdanov was a Russian physician, philosopher, economist, science fiction writer, and revolutionary. In 1924, he began experimenting with blood transfusions, possibly in search of eternal youth, because that's what most early transfusions were for. And some still are. It's an industry that pops up every now and again, please don't buy into it. After 11 transfusions, performed by himself, on himself, he declared that his balding had stopped and his eyesight had improved. 
Unfortunately for Bogdanov, he was not one to test the health of the blood he was using, leading to a transfusion of blood infected with malaria and tuberculosis, shortly after which he died. This is Forrest Kelly, host of the Best 5-Minute Wine Podcast. Join me as we travel to wineries around the world. We find out everything they have to offer, and we throw in your listener questions. Look for it wherever you subscribe to your podcasts. The Best 5-Minute Wine Podcast. A special place in science heaven must be reserved for Stubbins Firth, who, as a medical student, conducted a series of potentially life-saving but absolutely revolting experiments to prove that yellow fever was not contagious. Yellow fever is a viral disease that causes fever, chills, loss of appetite, nausea, and muscle pains, particularly in the back, as well as headaches, and can be fatal. At the time, doctors believe yellow fever passed from person to person, like the flu, but Firth disagreed. He started by pouring fresh black vomit from a yellow fever patient into cuts on his arm. He didn't develop yellow fever. Emboldened by this, Firth collected a patient's vomit and put it in his eyes. He smeared himself with all manner of assorted bodily fluid collected from yellow fever patients, including blood, spit, sweat, and urine. He even once sat in a vomit sauna full of heated vapors of regurgitation, which caused him, quote, great pain in the head, but left him in otherwise good health. Finally, he took to actually ingesting the vomit, first in pill form, then straight from a patient's mouth. I told you it was going to get icky. In his 1804 book, A Treatise on Malignant Fever with an Attempt to Prove Its Non-Contagious Nature, he declared yellow fever not contagious. In fact, yellow fever is contagious, but only through blood transmission via something like a mosquito bite. That was proven by another self-experimenter, U.S. Army Surgeon Jesse Lazier, who allowed himself to be bitten by yellow fever-infected mosquitoes in the early 1900s. Ironically, Lazier would die of mosquito-borne illness, but not from the mosquitoes he bred for the experiment, but rather a wild one who just happened by. Just as Firth swam against the tide of yellow fever contagion, Dr. Barry Marshall was sure that the medical establishment was wrong about the cause of stomach ulcers. The accepted wisdom was that they were caused by lifestyle factors, primarily stress, but Marshall and pathologist Robin Warren were sure it was bacteria. Specifically, the Heliocobacter pylori. To prove their hypothesis, they needed to examine how the bacteria affected a healthy human volunteer. But as Marshall explained to New Scientist in 2006, I was the only person informed enough to consent. Marshall didn't tell the hospital's ethics committee what he had in mind, for fear of being turned down. He also didn't tell his wife, until after he had swallowed the bacteria. He was fine for about three days, then began vomiting. 
his wife complained that he had putrid breath. A biopsy taken 10 days later confirmed that the bacteria had infected his stomach and he had gastritis, which leads to ulcers. It still took another eight years for Marshall and Warren's theory to be widely accepted, but their work would eventually win them the Nobel Prize for Physiology or Medicine. Another self-experimenter whose work had long-term personal consequences was the polymath J.B.S. Haldane. Haldane wanted to build on the work done by his father, John Scott Haldane, on the physiology of Navy divers in the early 20th century. But whereas Haldane Sr. restricted himself to observation and measurement, Jr. took a more direct approach, repeatedly putting himself into a decompression chamber to investigate the physiological effects of various levels of gases. Haldane was concerned with the welfare of sailors in disabled submarines, and his work led to a greatly improved understanding of nitrogen narcosis, as well as the safe use of various gases in breathing equipment. But he paid a high price. Oxygen poisoning, ironic as that sounds, resulted in numerous seizures, one of which was so violent that it left him with crushed vertebrae. He also suffered from burst eardrums, but he found a silver lining in that. The drum generally heals up, he said, adding, if a hole remains, although one is somewhat deaf, one can blow tobacco smoke out of the ear in question, which is a social accomplishment. So he's got that going for him, which is nice. On the topic of water safety, a certain species of jellyfish was suspected, at least by one doctor, of causing a strange illness that appeared in Australia in the mid-20th century. It was characterized by severe muscle aches, nausea, and pain so intense that strong opioids were needed, as well as a truly bizarre symptom. Patients would experience levels of anxiety so severe that some of them reportedly asked their doctors to kill them. The cause was unknown, but it seemed to come from the sea, as most patients had been swimming prior to the appearance of their symptoms. Jack Barnes, a Queensland physician, eventually narrowed down the suspects to a species of tiny, nearly transparent box jellyfish. To see if he was right, the intrepid doctor jabbed himself with the tentacle of a Carukia barnesi and settled into weight. But he wasn't alone. Probably losing his shot at Father of the Year, he also stung his nine-year-old son as well as a young lifeguard. Nowhere in my research could I find what the relationship was between the doctor and the lifeguard, or what sales pitch he used to talk the lifeguard into it. Not too long after being stunned, all three began to experience excruciating pain and were eventually taken to hospital for treatment. Barnes's work would uncover the cause of the mysterious symptoms, now called Urukanji syndrome. All three went on to recover. No word as to how this affected their father-son dynamic. If you've been feeling smart because these silly olden-time people experimented on themselves, you can kiss your smug sense of superiority goodbye. Scientists still sometimes deliberately infect themselves with pathogens they're studying. Anatoly Brukov is a Russian research scientist specializing in permafrost, a geocryologist who thought it would be a keen idea to inject himself with a bacteria that's estimated to be three and a half million years old. Dr. Brukov first discovered this ancient bacteria, Bacillus F, in 2009, 
frozen deep in the permafrost on a mountain in Siberia's Yakutsk region, even deeper in the permafrost than woolly mammoth remains have been found. Dr. Brukov estimated it was over three million years old, but despite its advanced age, it was still alive. Such ancient viruses are incredibly complex, with hundreds upon hundreds of protein-encoding genes. Modern influenza A has eight. But there is so much more that we don't know about them. According to Brukov, Bacillus F has a mechanism that enables it to survive for so long beneath the ice, and that that same mechanism could be used to extend life. Read Fountain of Youth. See also Blood Transfusions from People Younger Than You. In tests, Brukov says the bacteria allowed female mice to reproduce at ages far older than typical mice. Fruit flies, he told the Siberian Times, also experienced a positive impact, unquote, from exposure to the bacteria. The problem is, he still didn't know what exactly that mechanism is. But that didn't stop Brukov from starting human trials, or trial. When interviewed two years later, he claimed to have seen no ill effects from the bacteria. He hadn't had a cold or flu since, and said he felt more energetic. Needless to say, his work is considered fringe. And if he doesn't turn into a giant ground sloth, or at least like a were-yeti, I am going to feel very cheated. If you've ever been stung by a bee, you would probably label that painful. If you've ever been bitten by a bullet ant, you might call it pure, intense, brilliant pain, like walking over flaming charcoal with a three-inch nail in your heel. Thankfully, you don't need to be bitten by a bullet ant, because biologist Justin Schmidt already has. In fact, he's been bitten or stung close to a thousand times by a wide variety of painful creatures, all while making careful notes along the way. He created the Schmidt Sting Pain Index, a way of measuring and describing the relative pain that insects inflict on humans and other animals, which is both elucidating and entertaining, in a schadenfreude kind of way. Schmidt ranks each insect sting on a scale of 1 to 4, 4 being the most painful. He also describes each sting with evocative, even poetic language. The sweat bee, for example, which ranks as one on the pain scale, feels light and ephemeral, almost fruity. A tiny spark has singed a single hair on your arm. It almost sounds like a pretentious person describing wine. Garnering a score of two, a yellow jacket sting is described as hot and smoky, almost irreverent. Imagine W.C. Fields extinguishing a cigar on your tongue. At three on the scale, the sting of the Maricopa harvester ant is described as After eight unrelenting hours of drilling into that ingrown toenail, you find the drill wedged into the toe. The description of the warrior wasp sting, which is category four, shows Schmidt's realization of the lunacy of his bodily sacrifice. Torture. You are chained in the flow of an active volcano. Why did I start this list? Really puts that splinter you had last week into perspective. My personal favorite, though, is the tarantula hawk, widely regarded as the most painful sting yet discovered by man. Blinding, fierce, shockingly electric, 
A running hair dryer has been dropped into your bubble bath. A bolt out of the heavens. Lie down and scream. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. The annals of medical misadventure aren't limited to experimentation, though. There are numerous accounts of doctors having to perform surgery on themselves, such as Dr. Jerry Nielsen, who found a lump in her breast while stationed in an Antarctic research station in 1999. Planes can only land at the station four months out of the year, so she was isolated from any potential cancer treatment. Nielsen trained a carpenter and welder to assist her, and cut the lump from her own breast to perform a biopsy on it. She then began taking a course of self-administered chemotherapy, dropped off by a military supply plane, until the weather calmed enough to fly in another doctor. Take that, Humphrey Davy, with your nitrous oxide parties. Thanks for spending part of your day with me. love history but hate when it's stuffy and boring? Well look no further and join me, Katie Charlewood, your friend the neighborhood social scientist and reader of books, as I delve into unsolved historical mysteries, murders by gaslight, and of course, women who have been misrepresented through all time. On Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>